When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Today on the Family Brain, I will be talking to Carol Miller, LCSW, who is an expert on child loss, traumatic grief, infertility, miscarriages, and is currently a hospice social worker. So Carol has run the gamut of various grief experiences, and today she also shares what got her interested in this work. Um, For more information about Carol, you can find her at carolsmillerlcsw.com. And she actually also runs um, several groups based on Brene Brown's research about vulnerability, which I thought was pretty cool, too. We might have to do another episode about that. Um, I came upon Carol because a friend of mine who is struggling with infertility passed an article to me that Carol had written about the loneliness and the isolation that people can experience sometimes when going through infertility. And so I reached out to Carol and asked her if she would be willing to talk about her experiences. And she agreed. So take a listen. Well, Carol, I first wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got involved in the work around child loss and infertility and just supporting people through that process. Sure, Megan. Um, I uh, sometimes have thought that and said to people that um, I feel like death and grief uh, and those sorts of losses have followed me most of my adult uh, career. Okay. Um, Yeah, I started my work world basically as a paralegal after being a secretary for a very brief time, but as a paralegal in a law firm uh, in the area of estates and trusts. And so that's where, um, you know, I was started working with people who experienced death and grief only from the perspective of, you know, what do we do with all this stuff and how we divide our estates. And then it was during that time when I became pregnant with my first son, Matthew, and it was a perfect, quote-unquote, pregnancy, no issues during the pregnancy. He was born full term on February 21st in 1986. He was born blue. Uh, Very unexpected. We didn't see this coming, and he uh, was rushed to Children's Hospital. We were living in the Northern Virginia area at that time. He was rushed to Children's Hospital and underwent surgery his first night. Mm. Uh, They thought they fixed the problem, and in fact, he came home with us for a brief time, but Matthew died 40 days after his birth, uh, after having gone into uh, congestive heart failure and back to the hospital. When they did an autopsy, they said pretty much everything was coming off of his heart in incorrect places and incorrect directions. So he wouldn't have made it. Uh, But of course, we were devastated. We didn't see this coming. 
we were very familiar with 12-step groups. And so uh, when we heard that there was a group for parents who had lost babies through miscarriage, infant death, and stillbirth, we trotted right off and um, started going attending that group and found it very helpful and supportive to be with others who experienced this. And then I got pregnant a few, you know, a, a little bit later, and um, of course they had told us his uh, experience, the experience with Matthew was a fluke. And so I was still under 35 or whatever magic age it is that, that they do the testing. And um, so no testing except for a heart check. And they said, oh, the baby's heart's great. It was another son. And about month seven, eight, they started telling me he wasn't growing the way he should be. And uh, around eight months, they decided that they needed to do a fetal heart stress test. And at that point, he flunked. And they immediately sent me to the hospital where Daniel was born uh, via C-section, emergency C-section. Daniel was a trisomy 13 baby, so if you think of Down syndrome as a trisomy 21, anything lower on the chromosomal scale is even worse. Okay. So he lived for about two days hooked up to monitors and that sort of thing uh, in the hospital before we decided to take him off life support. And of course, it felt like, wow, this happened two times in a row. And, you know, we were at that point pretty overwhelmed by just, you know, did we do something wrong in our lives that right. would have caused this to happen? You know, why is this? It seems like that's us? a very common reaction. It sounds like people oh, just sure. start to soul search sure. and think, why? Yeah. Why me? You know, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Like, what did I do wrong? Where and when and how? Um, so we returned to the grief groups and uh, managed to get through that again. I do uh, need to let you know I have a daughter who's 30 and she's lovely and wonderful. And I have a grandson who's who's now just turned three. But my pregnancy with, with her was pretty anxiety driven. Um, you know, I felt like I was a fruit loop most of the way because yeah. my experience thus far were children die after their pregnancy. I mean, so. that's a lot. And even just pregnancy in general is so, can be so stressful. And then when you've already had a trauma like that, I can't imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, about three, when she was about three years old, we thought again about the grief group and we thought, oh, you know, they were so helpful. It was just so good to be with other people who had experienced these losses. And so I called the facilitator and I said, is there anything we can do to help? And she said, as a matter of fact, I'm done being a facilitator. Do you want to take it over? And uh, we'd never done anything like this in our lives, but we were sure, absolutely, we'd love to do this. So we facilitated the group for a few years. And I, I think, honestly, Megan, at this point, my life was going in I mean, I still liked the work I did at the law firm, but it was coming to an end, and I felt like I need to be thinking about other directions. And um, so I went back to school, got my BA, then I went on to get my MSW. And, you know, my thought was I want to work in the world of grief and um, death. And I did work at a hospice for, for a while. Then I went to another organization, and finally I jumped into a private practice and Many of the people that I saw struggled with grief, and of course, given my history, I called in. There were, you know, many people are attracted to me who had had those early miscarriages or infant deaths and stillbirth. I also got very involved with Shady Grove Fertility, <laughs> which is a huge fertility center in D.C., and worked in conjunction with them in terms of working with folks who uh, were making decisions around their infertility experiences. So that's really my journey um, into that that world. And I really feel like my son sort of directed me 
I was just talking to someone else, a woman who is a doctor and runs an eating disorders clinic and was drawn to that work similarly because her sister had struggled. And I think it's, it's hard because sometimes these things touch our lives, but it's pretty special when you can use it to help someone else, you know, not that you would wish for the experience, but that if you can, you know, reach out and help somebody else who's going through something similar. Absolutely. It's, it's similar to the idea of, you know, alcoholics who go through AA and then sort of, um, turn around and help other people who have struggled with the disease. So they have an understanding of it that way. Yeah. So what, what sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like one of the reasons I had reached out to you, I mentioned when I initially reached out to you was that I had two girlfriends, we were sitting and talking and somehow one of them mentioned that she had had a series of miscarriages And I had no idea. And I'm very close with her. And then the other woman who I'm also close with said, oh, I also, and we didn't know each other at that time in our lives. um, But I just, and then they were sort of connecting on this point. And I just, it just made me realize how many people are probably walking around with similar stories that you just don't know, because how do we share them? And how do we support each other through all of this? Um, Right. Right, absolutely, and uh, and when I experienced my first, the first loss of my first son Matthew, um, we, like I said, we were we'd been with twelve uh, step groups for some time, and so we went back to the twelve step groups as well, and we had all these people coming up and going, oh, I had ten miscarriages, and oh, I my my first child or my second child or whatever died, and, and we were like, oh my gosh, we've known these people for years, and never knew that. So yes, you're right. That's a very common, that's a very common experience. I think we don't talk about it, but I have to be honest with you. I don't think we talk about death, dying or grief, mm. period, very well in this society. So um, what do you think that's about? Uh, you know, I think we live in a society that's very focused on productivity and life and that we uh, have a great fear of death uh, still and we don't understand it and uh, we don't want to and of course grief when people are grieving they're not as productive typically because they're you know they're struggling with sadness and pain and hurt and missing and yearning and all these other feelings and so they're not as productive and the rest of the world is sort of giving them the message of please get over this you're making us uncomfortable mm-hmm. move on we we don't want to have to you know deal with this and we're uncomfortable right we're uncomfortable with it it almost seems like it's maybe it calls or puts in the light our own humanity like that we also are going to die and we do not like being reminded of that or we don't oh, yeah. like being reminded of how little control we might actually have over circumstances. Um, yes. And this sort of shines a light on that. It does. And I think with miscarriages and other pregnancy losses and infertility, the added piece or some of the added pieces from those kinds of losses is the fact that, you know, you didn't, other people don't meet the baby or get to know the baby, you may not even meet the baby yourself if you miscarried early on or, um, you know, had a pregnancy loss early in the process. And so people don't see that um, as clearly as a loss um, or understand that it generates exactly the same types of feelings and emotions and experiences that, that anybody might experience with experiences if that makes sense it does make sense and I I've heard two people talk about how um you know oh well oh you had a miscarriage when when was it like that would make a difference did you see that it made a difference or did you see frustration around that idea that oh it would be more meaningful later in the pregnancy than earlier or, or do you know what I mean is it yes yes and, and that ties also to um, infertility as well, sort of the idea that 
you know, if you actually hadn't been pregnant, you were only trying to get pregnant, and or you got pregnant and you lost the baby within two, two weeks of, you know, conception, well, really, that um, wasn't a baby yet mm. in many people's eyes, or you didn't actually become pregnant. And so, um, yes, much less. Even with me, I mean, I had full-term births both times, and I would still, people say some of the darndest things. Mm-hmm. That's uh, probably know, the nicest so, way you could possibly say it, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, oh, it was for the best, yeah. or you can always have another baby, or uh, at least you didn't know the baby. Um, I think my least favorite one was, now you have a little angel in heaven, mm. and my thought was, I don't want a little angel, right. <laughs> and I want right. a baby in my yeah. arms, right? Yes. Or you can always adopt, or you can have other children, or you can pay, you know, be more, if you have children already, you can be more, you know, focused on your living children, all of which are painful right. things to hear. Well, and one of the things that you had mentioned before was just this idea of it being hurtful, but also kind of minimizing. And in a lot of these examples that you're providing, it kind of sounds like people are, and I'm sure it's often with the best intention, but it's that people are trying to help you decide how you're going to feel about it. And that's the minimizing part of it is that in grief, you kind of have a journey of you have to decide where you're going to put these new pieces. Correct. And your life is significantly changed. Even even if you struggle with infertility, uh, your life is significantly changed. You're making decisions all the time when you're struggling with infertility about do we go to see a doctor to deal with this? Do we um, do these procedures to see if we can become pregnant? They're very expensive procedures. How many do we do? Do we put work choices like perhaps a promotion on hold because we have to you know focus on this right now Um, your sex life as you know it in terms of your uh, intimacy around that goes out the door because now you're sharing that with some medical personnel Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's crazy making for uh, in, in many ways for a lot of a lot of folks and um you have all these decisions and it's a lot of money that you're at time that you're putting into it. So, um, yeah. What would you say was something that helped? I noticed you said that you and your husband were the ones who had done these support groups together. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you yeah. feel that you kept that relationship strong while you were going through all of this? It was interesting. Well, I think the support group helped, although I have to say that at that time, um, so these, this was in the mid-80s, um, I would say on balance, uh, most of the groups were attended more frequently just by the women. Um, and so my husband was, at that time, was probably uh, one or two or three men who would come to the groups. So, uh, you know, just going to the the groups was really helpful for both of us to understand that we weren't alone in this process. And I think that helped to keep us supported. It was more helpful after Matthew died. I think after Daniel died, we both um, really struggled with being in different places around our grief. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had to learn better how to know that it was okay that the way we grieved was different and that he, for example, might be really angry about stuff, whereas I might be really sad around stuff, and that both were valid experiences. So it was really important to understand that we grieve very, very uniquely and very, very differently. This is true across the board for any type of grieving, and for a couple uh, it could be very especially hard because your you know your marriage is impacted. You're struggling with so many things, and to, to 
and not be on the same page sometimes is really challenging. Um, there's a lot of messages for men, I think, in this society around be the protectors and take care of uh, your wife and what's happening with her. Plus, they don't bond with the babies um, as early in the pregnancy, although this is changing a lot because of the technology that's available. So now you can virtually see your baby, what, two weeks in? Right. Too soon. <laughs> where, where, sorry. I said almost too soon sometimes just because it's like a lot of information very quickly. And I think it seems like that can also be, not that it's not good to use the technology we have, but just, right. you know, there's still a lot of things just getting going at that point. Right. Absolutely. Just to, to put it scientifically, a lot of things yeah. getting going. That's all I know. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so now you're, but you're getting to see all mm -hmm. of this information so much sooner than it used to be. And so it could be uh, a bonding point earlier on for the couple. And also, um, it, it, when the loss happens, it could be, create a lot more feelings, I, I think, a lot bigger struggle right. but um, but still I think the women because they're carrying the baby I mean I don't know about you when you were carrying yours but I pretty much knew like I'm pregnant and um, I can feel it and I know it's happening and my body's changing and I can feel the baby growing where that's not the male experience right. so I think for a couple you know men men are um, less less likely to bond early on than women and I have to be honest, I was guilty of this myself, just not really realizing the impact it has on men as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just the feelings of sort of powerlessness and yeah. and and grief. Um, and, you know, it's easy to think, well, the woman is the one whose body is changing or who's, you know, maybe has to do the hormone shots or, you know, I don't know. It just, I, that was a bias I had until I had, was talking to someone and they sort of helped me understand that that the partner was grieving as well and it just Absolutely. looked different you know Absolutely. and it's just and I, I you know I fancy myself kind of um, evolved in on these topics but apparently you know you just miss things just based on your own experience you know well how would I feel um so what yeah, I know my, sorry go ahead my husband would come home and say nobody ever asks me at work anything about me like, mm. how I'm feeling yes. or what I'm experiencing. But everybody asks me how you're doing. Right. And, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, and you don't want to shine the spotlight back on you. Well, what about me? You almost don't want to have to ask for it, you know, but but it's right. it's there and that's it's important right. to recognize. Yeah. Right. And, and as, you know, with, with the infertility uh, procedures, I mean, they they encourage the couples to come together to the appointments and so the the men are pretty heavily involved right from the get-go for sure mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah and when you like what you're saying before when you've made a lot of life decisions around the choices you're making you know it's you there's a lot on the line it's it's a lot of pressure for everyone mm -hmm. uh, so the other thing with I think with infertility is especially at the level that I was working with couples uh, what some of the things I was doing was talking to them about, you know, um, having to make choices around using donor eggs or donor mm. sperm or gestational carriers. So now you're looking at even bigger questions around, oh, it's not, it may not be my genetic material right. uh, in part, and or, and or I might not be the one carrying the baby, but what's that like? And how do we cope with that? And we sort of come into this world with the belief that um, we're, you know, that we will be able to bear children, and at some point in our lives we'll make those choices. And so there's a loss inherent in that when we can't right. bear children ourselves, or we have to make other choices around. Whether or not it's you know our genetic material or somebody else's that comes into play, right? And I think it's just different for everyone. Some you know, I mean, just yep. in 
the conversations just with people I know. Um, you know, it's just, well, why don't you just do this? Someone might suggest to them, and that's not at all what they are interested in doing. Correct. Yeah, so. Correct. Uh, and even just the ethical issues that come into play around, you know, we can talk about ethical issues in sort of a, um, what's the word? Abstract. But when it comes down to what do you actually want to do for yourself, you know, do you, and if you create an embryo, is what do you do if you don't end up using it? Or, or what yep. what happens next? You know, and it's it's very heavy weight. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of choices that people have to make that, that like never even occur to them mm-hmm. that they might have to be making in their lives. It's yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's wonderful technology. It provides a lot of options for people that wouldn't have options otherwise. And it also creates a lot of questions. And you're right, raises a lot of ethical issues as well. And did you have to walk with people through those ethical decisions? Or is there someone else that that also gets involved in that? Uh, To some degree, yes. I mean, so for example, if I was working with a couple who were making, talking about using, say, donor egg, um, some of the questions that that I would be assessing or talking with them about is what happens when this child grows up uh, and, you know, will you be talking with this child about this piece that they're part of their genetic inheritances, you know, from somebody else that's not related um, to both of you as a couple, and what do you imagine those, you know, those conversations might be like, and how will that impact you in terms of grief at that point, and, you know, and so what do you think about that, and it wasn't for me to say you should do that, or you shouldn't do that, but just let's have a conversation about what you're thinking in that context and what it might be like when they find out and if they want to meet the person who's provided that genetic component, what might that be like? (laughs) And that's a hard enough decision to make as an individual, nevertheless, as part of a couple, you know, where you kind of have to try to work to get to some middle ground where both people feel comfortable. And they're all very stressful decisions yeah. and, you know, again, not something we expect to be doing when we start our marriage life for the most part. Well, that makes a lot of sense. What I know we have talked a little bit about some things that are hard to hear or things that aren't useful that people say. What would you say are some ways that we can sort of better support people that we know that are going through this, that if we want to you know, have people feel like they can be comfortable being Mm -hmm. open with us. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious then before I answer that, Megan, like when you were with those two uh, friends of yours who you said had all of a sudden mentioned that they experienced miscarriages, like what did you do? What did you find yourself? I just found in that instance, they were connecting with each other. So I just listened in that instance. Um, Mm -hmm. when it's been one person, I kind of, I mean, it's hard because I just say, I'm so sorry. Like, is there anything I can do? That's a lot. It's hard because I think it also depends on the person and how comfortable they're feeling in sharing. That was actually one of the listeners to the podcast had a question about communicating with others, you know, like Mm -hmm. if you're the one going through this, what's the best way to communicate with other people to sort of share what you're going through. Um, so I, I just said, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do I'm here for you if you mm-hmm. want to talk about it? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, sometimes I'm not, I'm not really sure because it's, it's yeah. hard because you don't know how that person's processing it on their own and to right. sort of impose like, I'm going to show up with 15 meals and, you know, let's go to a movie. Like that might not be what they're looking for. They might want to not talk, you know? Right. So that's where I, I can sometimes not know what's best. Well, actually that's a good space to be in. Okay. Uh, It's a difficult, it's a difficult place to be in though. The, what, what uh, I've come to think of and uh, 
going through some training and sort of identified as I don't know space, which quite frankly, in the world of grief, because I work with grief every single day as part of my work world, and um, I don't know what's going to come into my office, like how this person will be thinking about their their grief and what their expectations are around their grief, and so I have to be with every person in this space of, I don't know, I don't know you, and I don't know what this experience is like for you. I know what it was like for me. Even if I had, even if the person came into my office and said, I lost two babies shortly after their birth, it still wouldn't be the same experience that I had. It would just be their experience, which would be different, right? So part, for me, part of the practice is trying to stay in that space of, I don't know, which quite frankly in this world is a real challenge. It is a challenge. I'm with the rest of the world. I want to fix and make better and all that kind of stuff. And um, then the next part for me is to shut up and listen, basically, to ask the question, what do you, what would be important to talk about? And what do you, what do you want to tell me? What do you need to tell me? What's important to you to share about this experience and not, uh, try to force them to say more or less than they want to say. Um, And then just to listen from my perspective and just see what sort of shows up. Because we all process it differently. Um, For example, and I don't, by the way, believe or subscribe any much longer in the Kubler-Ross five-stage theories of Mm -hmm. processing grief. And I think there's a lot of good um, thoughts and ideas about the grief process in the world these days. But mostly I see grief as a big, messy ball of mm-hmm. emotional, cognitive, physical um, responses, um, spiritual responses, responses as well. And I just need to shut my mouth and listen to yeah. what's showing up. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. I feel like there's some comfort in that the stages of grief, like, okay, here are the stages, step one, you know, and, and wouldn't, it would be so nice. I mean, that would be much, yeah. you know, cause then you kind of can have your little checklist and okay, what's the next yeah. one, you know, and it just, it doesn't seem to show up that way. Right. Or wardens for tasks or any right. of those, because, but think about it, you know, Megan, it's, those feel like they're controllable, right? Mm-hmm. So if I if I've done this task, then I can, you know, then I can check it off my list and think, "Phew, I'm going to move to the next one." Right. But, but life doesn't work that no. way. I don't know why we think grief would work that way. No, so it's sort of amusing on some level, and it's really hard because I think the rest of the world keeps trying to, you know, our society general keeps trying to impose a process or impose a controlled way of doing things and grief just it doesn't work in that way it's a normal natural response to a really painful experience and um, whether it was a person who was 96 years old or a baby that was just beginning in our body, it still, you know, precipitates the same grieving process. And again, unique for each and every single person. That's one thing that I feel like as I'm getting older and as a counselor myself, but as a younger counselor, I think I heard about the usefulness of people telling their stories, but I'm not sure I really believed it in my bones. Like I still think I thought, okay, well that's fine. But once they're done with their story, I will come up with the plan to fix this or the plan to, okay, how do we get back on track? And now, I mean, just having gone through more life experiences myself, I do, I really see the beauty in the process of allowing people to tell their story and just to have that space for it. And I, I, like I said, I had heard that before, but I'm not sure I really believed it as much as I'm starting to now. Just that yeah. that is a gift that you can give to it someone. 
it is. So as a, a person, just even anybody, just allowing that story to be told and told and told and told as many times as it needs to be told um, it is a wonderful gift that you can give to somebody. And I think working especially in the world of grief, because I don't, um, I don't diagnose in the strict DSM, what is it, five now, uh, um, idea, you know, we don't need to do that. I'm just basically sitting with wherever these people are in that moment and just allowing them to have their process and not trying to come up with you know, here's the plan and here's how we're going to attack it sort of thing. And it's one of the most difficult and also one of the most, to me anyway, rewarding spaces to be in. Um, and most of it's just about listening and allowing them to, as you said, tell the stories as much as they need to. Um, for others, I think, you know, just allowing those spaces to happen just, you know, as friends or as family, and also to, especially when it comes to miscarriages and infertility and pregnancy losses, if they can educate themselves a little bit around the fact that this happens so often, and it really does trigger grief, just like every other loss triggers grief, I think it's helpful to know that somebody, when you're talking to them, that they've taken some time to do that, right? Right. And also, um, if you've, if you as a parent has, have named the baby regardless, like even some of the people that I work with here now, um, if they come in and tell me, oh, I, I gave, you know, lost a baby at five weeks, let's say, and her name was Jane. So, my then calling that child by the name is really important. So continuing to name the baby, okay. whatever, right? It's yeah. your, again, sort of acknowledging the person. Um, well, and it sounds like that also just kind of gives sort of what we were talking about earlier about the unrecognized grief that can happen. It sort of gives it some almost physical weight, you know, to make it like... Yes. Like you all, not that it, it's not real, but that it it is something to hold on to, maybe. Right. It well, and it says it really honors the it, it really honors the loss as well. Right. So yes. you as a friend or you as a family member or a clinician are saying, oh, you know, when you when you had Jane or when she was with you in your in your belly, you know, what was that experience like for you? Then you're you're really honoring that person in that moment and you're honoring the parent by acknowledging that and it, and yes it just they feel like oh this, this person really gets it they mm -hmm. really get that this that this was a person to me right right um, also just doing things like remembering special dates like the due date you know if you if you're aware of it if they shared that with you or the anniversary date of the loss or and of course holidays can be ugh, Mother's Day, yikes, mm. or Father's Day, Whew. Yes, really painful for these folks. Yeah. I was at a um, church service locally, and it was the first time I'd ever heard it acknowledged at a service on Mother's Day, just acknowledge how, what, that it's, it can be a time of celebration, but that it can also be a time of such pain for so many people. And I thought yeah. that was really special. Like it, it, and, and too bad that it's not a reminder more often. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that, that was surprising to me that it was mentioned, yeah. but it was nice. What, um, I know you mentioned before that sometimes going through the grief process or maybe always going through the grief process can also be a spiritual journey. How do you bring in people's spirituality or how do you use and weave that into your work with people? Into it. Mostly again, I just, uh, stay curious. Mm -hmm. For example, I was meeting earlier today with a gentleman whose wife recently died, and the way he kept talking about, you know, praying and going to church and having a mass, it got real clear fairly quickly on that this was important to him as an important 
part of his life. So that opened the door for me to be able to just be curious with him about, you know, what what is his faith like? What is the value of it to him? Does he see it as supportive? Like, because often, like, when people have losses at any point, um, they their faith may be, their spirituality, their faith, whatever they think of it as, could be significantly shifted or changed or opened in a different way. After my first son died, I just really found myself very angry with God. Mm-hmm. And I still have a memory of one day driving around. I don't even know where I was going, but I just virtually started screaming at God in the car. Mm-hmm. Like, how could you do this? What was you know, what's wrong with me? Why did you do this? What were you thinking? And it took me a a good couple of years to really start to understand, have a different understanding, I guess, around the God of my understanding and and the value of it. So it's very different for everybody. So it it could become more, it could become stronger. It could, people sometimes will tell me, oh, you know, my faith is my rock and it's what helps me get through this. And then other people find themselves like so angry and upset Mm -hmm. and heard about it that they, it just really changes and shifts and they may stop going to church and they may let go of their faith for a while. It's not a bad thing. It's just a really hard thing when you're already struggling with this loss, right? So um, to also have that thrown into question can be really challenging for people. One of the things that I have personally experienced with the grief process is just how your brain sort of doesn't feel like it's working at full capacity. Is there any um, sort of safety advice that you give people just like, for example, for me, I went through a loss and... um, I thought I was fine and I'm fine. It's okay. It's okay. And then I forgot to put my car in park and it started to roll away and I tried to stop it with my arms, you know, and that's the moment where "Mm, maybe I'm not okay. Maybe, maybe things aren't really operating at full speed. And so um, what advice or suggestions do you give to people to sort of just slow down or take it easy with themselves or be aware that their brain and their functioning might not be, Quite up to yes, up to snuff. Yes, yeah. So part of what I talk about with folks who I'm meeting with is the fact that grief impacts the whole system, Mm -hmm. not just because we tend to see grief as an emotional process. Yes, and the reality is it it hits us physically, it hits us mentally, it hits us emotionally, it hits us behaviorally, spiritually. You name it, every single way. And so part of it is really educational, I think, is just letting people know, look, uh, you may experience a sense of confusion, you may experience an inability to stay focused and concentrate. And, you know, as soon as I say those things, oh, yes, absolutely, I can't can't think straight. Mm -hmm. And I think just understanding that that is part of the grieving process is really helpful to people to know that this could be hanging around for a while, mm-hmm. to not expect themselves to start, act, you know, getting back to, despite the, the uh, messaging in the world, not getting back to, quote, normal, unquote, which they won't anyway. But um, One of my friends that's had significant losses always calls it her new normal. You know, yeah. that there's just yeah. each time you're, you're never going to be the same again. Um, and that it's just the healing from that. You're not going to get back to that other person that you used to be. You'll be somebody else Mm -hmm. now with this, with this loss. But, and part of it, I mean, truly, I I think the, the brain does cognitively come back online, um, after a while, but there's, there's like not, I can't look at them and say, oh, uh, this many months or this many weeks or you know, because everybody's different. Right. So I just really, it's about saying this is part of the process. So be, it's important to be aware of it. It could, it could happen for you. Or I wait and listen again. You, 
know, as I listen to them and they're talking about the challenges they're having cognitively, then I can say, oh, so you're noticing these things and what's that like for you? And the other bigger piece, I think, Megan, is not just about are you experiencing this, but then what do you? what is your brain telling you about this experience? Mm-hmm. So let's say you're finding that you're really forgetful. Well, for a lot of people, that can be very disconcerting and alarming, and also they might feel bad about it. Like, this is awful. This mm-hmm. is a, I shouldn't be like this. I, um, I should have, you know, be thinking really much more clearly, mm-hmm. and so there's something wrong with me, and I'm a bad person. So it opens the door for also feelings of shame to start showing up, which that's like the last thing you need on top of a grief process. Uh, Shame is very debilitating, I think, and can create a lot more problems. And so part of my job of helping people to understand these are common, normal experiences, I think can, you know, help people to let go of the should. Yes. I should, should be here, or I should be there, or I should be this way or that way. Well, and that's one thing I appreciate that the world it seems is moving more in the direction of being more open about these experiences, that people are mm-hmm. a little bit more likely to share, oh, this is something that happened to me. So, you know, just be aware that could happen to you. Um, not always, but it does seem like we're, we're working towards not just keeping that mask on all the time. Yeah, yeah, that is my hope for sure. One of the things I was curious about with for you professionally, and this is something we've talked about um, before in different episodes, is just self-care. You know, you're going in and you're listening to all of these really hard stories, and um, and I'm sure you're encouraging other people to have self-care and to make sure they're attending to themselves. How do you manage hearing all of these stories and, and processing them through yourself without then becoming back in a deep grief. Yes, yes. (laughs) Sometimes it's a challenge. Yes. Depending on the stories. Yeah. Uh, So I am very um, aware that it's of the importance of um, good self-care and also, um, like for me, a lot of it's talking about it myself. So sharing with appropriate people myself, you know, colleagues and you know, what's happening and what my thoughts are about what just happened and how much I'm taking in um, from my interactions with my with my clients here in the office. And um, that's, that's a huge part of it. Also, um, I do practice a lot of, um, I try to practice good breathing practices, um, meditation sort of things, and as well as, you know, quiet time and reading and spending time with my own family and doing, uh, I'm a huge exercise freak, so I do work out pretty regularly, which, all of which for me is a really important um, part of the process of good self-care and um, eating in good ways. That being said, it's, it means for, for a lot of people who are grieving, a lot of these things are a real challenge, those early self-care processes. So really encouraging about just take it a little at a time, do the best you can. What if you are concerned that someone is not taking care of themselves? Like where do you, how do you know when, um, you know, say somebody is going through a loss and you haven't seen them for a while and they seem to be at their house and just doesn't seem to be reaching out. Um, what would be your advice for, like, when do you intervene? And I'm sure it depends on the level of relationship you have with that person. Um, right. So I'm not sure what you mean. You mean, like, if I was a friend? With yes. I'm sorry. Or... Yes. If you were a friend. And you, I guess yeah. you talking about early in the grief process, it's hard to have good self-care. I guess mm-hmm. at what point as a friend or as a bystander would you want to intervene? Um, or would you want to intervene? Do you just let someone be alone? If they, that's yeah, what they well, want. I would, I would guess I, for sure, especially I would initially want to, tr- to try to reach out and say, you know, I'd love to come and 
um, talk with you or or see how you're doing and how about if I and I and I think it's really helpful especially to be very specific like you know um, I have I have some time free on Saturday what if I dropped by for a half an hour and we just sat and talked for a while mm-hmm. and, um, to see how you're you know doing and you know if the person says no thank you I really appreciate it then I honor that I'd, I feel like I have to honor that space mm-hmm. um, and then maybe try again down the road to see where things are going if if I thought they were I mean there's a whole levels of this you know are they not self-caring or are they you know threatening to harm themselves mm-hmm. that's a different situation for sure um, I know what I have to do as a clinician but you know um, it, these are hard these are hard things to it is to, it's tricky sort of, yeah, yeah. I, I have a friend who was going through a hard time recently and um I was wanting to go stop over, but she wasn't really saying come over. So I called her husband and he was like, well, just show up. And I'm like, I don't know if I should do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, right. it just can be hard. And, and I yeah. guess I felt like I had gotten permission from him. Anyway, it all worked out fine. But it's sometimes hard to know, where, you know, how to be the most useful to someone. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah. one of the things that you had mentioned is that there's some good online resources. What What are some resources yeah. that you would suggest as useful right. to people. So specific to miscarriage, infant death, and stillbirth and infertility, um, the resources that I'm very familiar with are, first of all, the MISS Foundation, um, which is www.missfoundation.org. Um, Miss Foundation was started by Joanne Cacciatore uh, some years ago after her her daughter died. She freely talks about that. I think right now she's in Sedona, Sedona Arizona, I believe. Um, and she's done a lot of work in this field. She created this foundation, but it's national in the sense that if you went to the website, you could uh, find out if there were any groups okay. uh, in your local area. So you both could access the um, the website and also uh, you could see if she had if there was a group in your and I'm talking nationally not just you know in Arizona she's also written uh, recently a lovely book that I just finished not too long ago it's called Bearing the Unbearable Mm -hmm. and uh, it's really a good read and an easy you know um, easy read for uh Folks, and she's—it's really about the grief process from her personal perspective in many ways, um, and I think a really great resource as well. Um, so that's that, and then there's also something called the Share Pregnancy and Infant Loss Support. They are at National Share S H A R E dot org. They are also again a national a group, and they there are many many groups around the country that are under their umbrella. So again, you could go to their website, and you would find lists of grief groups that um, would meet that you could attend um, with with. The national share groups, I think that most of those groups are specific to miscarriage, infant death, and stillbirth. The groups that are under the Miss Foundation, the losses can also be um, death of a child, you know, as a young child or maybe middle-aged or young, young teenager or something. So that the range could be greater in terms of the losses. Of course, Compassionate Friends deals with the loss of children at any age, okay. you know, even adults. And again, they have, uh, you know, adult children. Um, and they have, again, groups all over the country. So if you went to Compassionate Friends, I can't, I can't remember if they're, they're probably an org, but it's okay. easy enough to find. I'll add um, links for the websites on our show notes. So people can yes, access that, that resource. Great. That would be great. And then the other one specific that I'm aware of for uh, fertility is called Resolve, R-E-S-O-L-V-E dot org. And they're a national infertility organization. So there's a, 
I think, you know, infertility itself has a lot of extra little twists to it mm-hmm. <laughs> that um, people might feel more um, comfortable, like, seeking out support through that kind of uh, resource. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, is there anything so those that... are the ones that I'm really familiar with in terms of national. That's great. What, um, is there anything that you were hoping you were able to share that I haven't asked you about? Um, let me think. Um, I do, just in terms of, support, I, you know, again, sort of looking at like, supporting yourself. I mean, mm. others are only going to be able to do so much, um, and they'll do it to different degrees. I do think it's really important to try to, when you have these kinds of losses, stay around the people that are that feel like they're the most supportive to you right um, those that aren't very supportive to sort of put them on a little list off to the side not very supportive maybe I'll get back to you maybe I won't we'll see how things go um, but one of the most helpful things to me was in my first after the first death a friend of mine um, in the 12-step program had experienced the loss of her son six months before to suicide. And what she said to me was, Carol, in your head, make a list. On one side of the list is people who support me. On the other side of the list is people who aren't very supportive right now. It's unfortunate that sometimes family members fall on the non-supportive side Mm -hmm. as well as close friends. So again, there's another loss, right, on top of what you're already experiencing. But it's really important to be with as much as you can with those who are supporting you. So um, acknowledging the loss, that it really truly is a loss that's valid and um, significant and that you need to grieve. And um, creating your own rituals. There's not a lot of rituals around miscarriages and deaths and stillbirths. So and or for, for infertility, so it's important to create rituals for yourself if that feels important. Um, seek ways to explore and express your emotions and thoughts. Understand that what you're experiencing is what we call disenfranchised grief. In other words, you're deprived of the right to grieve in some ways because mm-hmm. society doesn't see it as a as a grief necessarily. And there's no quick fix mm-hmm. to this. Um, no specific length of time that uh, you are should, you know, tell yourself, I should be done with this now. Um, it will move on its own, in its own way, in its own time, right. basically. Are there yeah. any specific rituals that you have seen people do? I mean, not that you would prescribe, here's your ritual, but what what are some things that people tend to find useful? That I was thinking of, yeah, you know, actually I was just reminded, you know, triggered myself um, around a memory of a woman who I'd met with, gosh, this was many years ago, but I think she'd had, oh, I want to say four or five, several miscarriages pretty early in the process, but she'd named all the babies and she'd never done uh, any sort of rituals and as we were working together it just came to her that she wanted to do that and so she basically spent some time one day at home on her own in her room writing letters to each one of them telling them you know her thoughts and and what she was feeling and what her life was like now and um, just naming them in her mind and this she came back a few weeks later and talked to me and said it was really helpful to do that. So nothing complicated or, you know, big deal. Just she needed to do that and she did, which I thought was wonderful. You can plant trees and, you know, put together memory books and um, purchase something. Like I have a couple of different pieces of jewelry that connect me to my sons. I have a, photograph book of the few photographs we had um, that my, uh, now uh, their father is an ex-husband, but he put that together for me, mm-hmm. and it's lovely to have that. Um, well, I have so enjoyed talking to you today. 
um, I feel like there's just so much information to share and useful perspective, given that you've, you know, worked in all of these different areas. Um, so thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing all that you know with us. You're welcome. And I really appreciate your asking me. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.